you've given to us in our own language. Thank you for each one here today. We thank you for blessing us with this time together and the freedom that we enjoy in this country. We thank you for providing this campus for us. We thank you that you are with us every day. I thank you for our children downstairs and in the nursery and for those who minister in those areas, Lord. We pray for them and for the children, Lord, that each one would see a glimpse of your blessing and they would grow in the knowledge and the admonition of the Lord Jesus Christ this day. We thank you for your word, and this morning we pray that we would be attentive to the things you have for us and that we would learn and that we would be blessed and that we would be a blessing as we go through our days uh, in the days that you give us. We thank you for our country. We do pray for our president and others in leadership, Lord. We pray they would seek your wisdom and your ways above all things. And we thank you for this day of life that you've blessed us with. And Lord, I thank you for each one gathered here. And I know there are many needs represented and many adversities of life. And yet, Lord, we know that you've allowed those things for a purpose and a reason. And we trust you in them and pray, Lord, that we would recognize that you are the God of all comfort in all of these times. We praise you and thank you. And we pray now that your Holy Spirit would teach us today For it's in Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen and amen. Good morning. One of my mentors always encouraged us in preaching class at seminary. He said, it's okay to have butterflies, just make sure they fly in formation. And so I trust today that my butterflies are flying in formation. Uh, Let's see here. All right. We're going to put up a slide here. There we go. You may not be able to see that really well, but if uh, you get online and you, if you really like the idea of manual labor, but you really don't like manual labor, these genes are for you. They're already uh, pre-crusted with some kind of fake mud, but you can buy these at Nordstrom's or, uh, let's see, there's other places. Neiman Marcus in Dallas, so we used to call that store Needless Markup, and... Uh, and also a couple other places, but uh, notice they're $425, but the shipping is free. I thought, that is a hook. That is a hook right there. Uh, but you can find a pair of these mud stains, uh, heavily distressed jeans available for purchase. So you can give people the idea that you do actually work hard for a living. Uh, The retailer says of these jeans, they embody the rugged Americana workwear that's seen some hardworking action with a crackled caked-on mud coating and shows you're not afraid to get down and get dirty. So for $425, I think I've got some jeans I would sell for half that price. (laughs) And, uh, but... uh, This uh, statement isn't actually new. They've been around a while, but uh, this last few months they've hit uh, the Twitter scope and a lot of people, this firestorm arising over these fake work genes. Uh, They're called uh, Barracuda straight late genes. And if you're familiar with Mike Rowe, Mike Rowe is uh, a celebrity who hosts Dirty Jobs program. And he's a guy who's not afraid of work. And here's his insight on this latest fad. These Barracuda straight leg jeans aren't pants. They're not even fashion. They're a costume for wealthy people who see work as ironic, not iconic. (laughs) So uh, there you go. Uh, We can get yourself some dirty jeans for just a few dollars. But, uh, you know, I thought uh, Mike Rowe's comment about they're just a costume for rich people. And, uh, you know, all of us uh, from time to time perhaps uh, desire to wear some kind of costume to give an impression of something. And sadly, 
Many Christians put on a costume of spirituality uh, and uh, pay deeply for it and dearly for it, when in reality it is by grace through faith. And we come to this passage today that Dave read for us out of John chapter 15. And uh, last week I gave you an assignment uh, out of verses 12 through 17 to find the five marks of a meaningful life. Uh, it seems like our society in looking for meaning in life uh, gets off on all sorts of detours like fake dirty jeans uh, and many, many, many other things in our culture and our society. And yet uh, Jesus is very clear here what it means to have a meaningful life. It is easy to wrap up meaning in things or our skills or our vocation or how we get through life, and yet true meaning is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he defines it for us here in chapter 15. Last week, uh, we began by looking at verses 1 through 11, which is a metaphor that Jesus uses to teach his disciples about what it means to have the bedrock of a meaning life. Where does a meaningful life come from? How do we know that our life counts? And Jesus lays it out very clearly for us here. If you were listening uh, to Dave, as he read this passage, as you look at it, in fact, there are a couple of words that keep showing up in this whole passage, and one of those is the word abide. Abide occurs some ten times in this first few verses of this. The other one is fruit. There's this idea of production. There's something about cause and effect that's going on here. And then the third word is love, which we're going to look at today. But just kind of uh, a review of verses 1 through 11 very quickly. It's really an answer to what Jesus taught the disciples in chapter 14 in verse 12. If you look at chapter 14, verse 12, he is telling the disciples, he is promising them something. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And the automatic question I'm sure was on the disciples' minds is, how do I do that? I'm just a human being. I have no power in and of myself, really, compared to Jesus Christ. In the greater context of John here, Jesus uh, has uh, taken the last Passover and he's converted it into what we call the Lord's table. He's applied new spiritual understanding and meaning to that uh, longing of the nation Israel for a Messiah because he is the fulfillment of all of those prophecies that he is the Messiah. He is the one, the Christ, who has come to rescue his people. And Jesus has done that. He's washed the disciples' feet to show them how sacrificial he is, to teach them all of these things. And now we're in the midst of what is called the upper room discourse or the upper room teaching. It goes clear to chapter, through chapter 17 to chapter 18 where Jesus will be arrested. He will be tried, crucified, and buried in the tomb. And then, of course, we have the great resurrection uh, after three days. And so we come in the middle of this in chapter 15, and Jesus is talking about abiding with him. This is the key to a meaningful life. And the bedrock of a meaningful life is found in verses 1 and 2, the cause of a meaningful life, where Jesus takes this metaphor of the vine, the branches, and the vine dresser. And, of course, the first century, uh, these disciples, now remember, it's just the 11 because Judas has already left to betray Jesus Christ. So these are people who are believers in Jesus as the Messiah. 
And he starts to teach them with this metaphor, the vine and the branches. And Jesus, being the master teacher, takes them from what they know. They know all about grapevines. They know about vineyards to what they don't know. And he uses that as an illustration of what it means to have lived the spiritual life and to live a meaningful life. And so Jesus is involved with this here, teaching them. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And then he compares the followers of Christ to branches that grow out of the vine and then produce fruit. Jesus is the true vine. The father's the fine dress, vine dresser. Two things to notice here. In verse two, he tells us that, or tells these disciples, it says that Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Uh, We are of the position this is a grace-oriented church. We believe the Bible is grace-oriented, and this is talking about believers. This is not talking about unsaved people. This is not talking about people who trust in Christ and lose their salvation. We don't believe that's possible. Uh, the cause for the meaningful life is the fact that they, the father that's the vine dresser lifts up these branches that are not productive. Another translation for takes away is lifts up. And we need to understand a little bit about viticulture in the first century because it wasn't until the end of the first century or the first part of the second century that the Romans invented growing grapes on trellises of lifting up the branches on, on uh, wood trellises Uh, And that's what we see today, and that's what we are familiar with. And yet in this time of Jesus' teaching, the the vines, the branches would lay on the ground. And when it came time for production, they would lift the branches up on sticks or on rocks to get them up off the ground. And it says he prunes them to provide more fruit. And so that's the cause is Jesus and the Father. And then the conditions for uh, for a meaningful life is Jesus is addressing the saved. And this is the word abiding. It occurs 10 times here. Uh, that word is a fellowship word. It's not a union word. The union has been completed. This is about communion with Jesus, about fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 6, it talks about burning branches. That is temporal loss. That is not uh, a hellfire he's talking about there. It's about temporal loss, loss of rewards, loss of peace, loss of joy when we're not abiding in Christ. And the consequences of an abiding life, the bedrock of a meaningful life is in Jesus Christ, in fellowship with him, confession of sin, knowing that he is with us all the time, and we can be confident in our prayer life because Christ is in control. We can glorify the Father because fruit-bearing is the evidence of discipleship. And what is fruit-bearing? It is that demonstration in our own lives that God is at work in and through us. Experienced love relationships in verses 9 and 10. In verse 11, it says, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. If you lack joy today, analyze whether or not you're trusting in the bedrock of a meaningful life in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives us joy. And then it's effective in our outreach to others that don't know Christ as their Savior yet. As I said, uh, love occurs in this passage nine times. And now Jesus goes on to give us five marks of a meaningful life. Last week, I gave you an assignment. And uh, some of you worked on it, and so today I thought we would look at the five marks of a meaningful life in verses 12 through 17. 
How do we evaluate our own lives? This is not for evaluating other people's lives, and this is not for evaluating churches or anything like this. This is to evaluate our own lives, not anybody else's. Five marks of a meaningful life. And this word love is the word that's translated here is the word agape in the Greek language. In the Greek language, there were four different phrases used for what we have translate the English word love. And all of them had a little different shade of meaning, like phileos. We talk about Philadelphia, city of brotherly love. That's a type of love. Eros is erotic love. But here it's agape love. This is a, not a self-serving kind of love. This is a unconditional love. This was the love that Jesus demonstrated as he went to the cross for you and for me and died in our place. So this is the type of love he's talking about. So first mark of meaningful life, and if you did this assignment, you may come up with a little bit different words. You may even have come up with six marks, and that's great. Uh, I just am focusing on five here. In verses 12 through 13, we see that love is sacrificial. Love is sacrificial. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no man than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. And so the extreme example of sacrificial love. And we think earlier in the Gospel of John of that great salvation verse, John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Great testimony of God's agape love, his self-sacrificing kind of love. The other John 3.16 is found in the little epistle of 1 John 3.16. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren and the sistren, by the way. <laughs> that sacrificial kind of love. In the days of uh, our Revolutionary War, in the American Revolutionary War, uh, there lived in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. Even though it's spelled like Ephrata, I've been informed it's pronounced Ephrata, Pennsylvania. There was a Baptist pastor during the Revolutionary War named Peter Miller there, and he was a friend of General George Washington's. And there also dwelt in that town a man named Michael Whitman. And Michael Whitman was an evil-minded man who did everything in his power to abuse and to oppose this man, Peter Miller. One day, Michael Whitman was involved in treason, and he was arrested and sentenced to death. This Baptist pastor, Peter Miller, started out on foot and walked 70 miles to Philadelphia to plead for this man's life. He was admitted into George Washington's president, uh, presence excuse me, and at once begged for the life of the traitor. And it's reported that George Washington said, no, Peter, I cannot grant you the life of your friend. And uh, Peter, Peter Miller exclaimed, my friend, he is my bitterest enemy, and, uh, that put, and, and he is the bitterest enemy that I have. And Washington said, what, you have walked 70 miles to save the life of an enemy? That puts the matter in a different light. And uh, Washington granted a pardon, and as he did that, Peter Miller took Michael Whitman from the very shadow of death back to his own home in Ephrata, Pennsylvania, no longer as an enemy, but as a friend. That's really a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We were the enemies of God, and uh, shaking our fist in his face, whether we were five years old or 45 years old, uh, when we came to know Christ as Savior. 
And so he laid down his life for his friends. And it's interesting here that he calls them friends. He calls us friends. Uh, And think about who these friends were. This was James and John who had just spent some time arguing who about who would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Simon Peter, who vowed never to desert Jesus, and yet uh, that very night left. Judas Iscariot, now departed, disillusioned, and the betrayer. And all of them of little faith, all of them fled when Jesus was arrested. And yet Jesus in love, not expecting anything in turn, would lay down his life for them and lay down his life for you and I. So love is sacrificial. That's the first mark of a meaningful life. And uh, that is a great challenge in my own heart as well as I hopefully think it's in your heart too. Secondly, love is obedient. Look at verse 14 with me. In verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. Now notice the bookends to this paragraph, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another. Verse 17, this I command you that you love one another. Love is obedient. Amy Carmichael, who is an early missionary to India, in expressing her desire to become like the Lord Jesus Christ, said these following words, and I quote Amy Carmichael, If in dealing with one who does not respond, I weary of the strain and slip from under the burden, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I have not the patience of my Savior with souls who grow slowly, if I know little of travail till Christ be fully formed in them, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I avoid being plowed under with all that such plowing entails of rough handling, isolation, uncongenial situations, strange tests, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. He humbled himself even to the point of death on the cross. The second mark of a meaningful life is obedience to Jesus Christ. Very clearly here, this is a command. And this is not something that we will up in our flesh and that we do in and of our flesh. Because there are days when we don't like people, aren't there? You know, there are days when it's really hard to love even people we're closest to. And yet, this is the key here is the fact in verse 16, he's going to tell the disciples, or chapter 16, he's going to tell the disciples that I'm leaving, but I'm going to send you another comforter, the Holy Spirit who comes, and it's through God's enablement that we can love sacrificially, that we can love obediently. And then thirdly, love always communicates the truth. Look at verse 15 with me. Verse 15, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. The supreme example of a truth teller is the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't shade the truth. He didn't uh, gloss it over. He always told the truth. We are called to be truth tellers. Ephesians chapter 4, the end of that great high chapter on the church about being truth tellers. Communicating the truth is always tempered by wisdom and grace. It never works when I tell somebody, boy, I really love you, but you really have a big nose. You know, that just, you know, you got to have wisdom and, and speak the truth in love and to communicate it well as Jesus did. Fourthly, uh, love takes the initiative. Love takes the initiative. Look at the first part of verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. This week, I was again staggered by the fact that all of the disciples did not choose Jesus. Jesus chose them. 
And there's a theological aspect where none of us chose Jesus. I want you to get that out of your head and your thinking. Jesus chose us. Ephesians, Colossians, elsewhere talks about God's choosing purposes. And I am staggered by that. For myself and for you. Jesus Christ chose us from the foundation of the earth. We can go into all sorts of debates about election, predestination. That's not the point here. The point here is if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he chose you, just like he chose these disciples. It's a staggering thought. And I've said many times that, you know, God was complete in and of himself, in and of himself, fully functioning and complete without any human beings, okay, before the foundation of the earth. And in his plan... He has chosen to include us with he- in heaven with him forever and ever and ever. That just staggers me, you know. I mean, I like you all, but, you know, three or four days, okay, go home, you know. <laughs> and that's my failing, my frailty in the flesh. Thankfully, God's going to change us, give us a glorified body in heaven, and we won't feel that way. But it amazes me from this side of heaven. So, God takes the initiative, and love takes the initiative. And finally, and fifthly, love will produce fruit that will remain, fruit that will remain, or enduring results. Look at the second part of verse 16 with me. You did not uh, choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. Notice that. So that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. There is enduring results. In Scripture, sometimes fruit is referred to to new believers in Jesus Christ. We've been talking about evangelism, these evangelism tips. And it's because our heart is, is we want our friends, our family, our acquaintances, our co-workers, our schoolmates, wherever we find ourselves, we want them in heaven with us forever and forever. And it says that our fruit will remain. There will be enduring results as we abide in Christ and share the gospel and there will be a, a, a eternal value to those things. I think one thing that I've noticed uh, with the passing of my parents and uh, cleaning out their household and, and everything, and I, I'm thinking, you know, there's not much left now. A few heirlooms and some of that stuff, but, uh, you know, you work your whole life for material things, and then it all just goes away. It all goes away. What is really important in life? And, of course, God's word and people and God himself are the only everlasting things that will survive this earth. Jesus is teaching us about his character and about his saving sufficiency, identifying himself as the life-giving, fruit-producing vine. Look back at verse 1. I am the true vine. He is the one that helps us produce fruit. Why do we need this? Because if we're abiding in Christ in the first part of 15... If we are his friend in the second part of verse 15, loving others, then we will be able to face what comes to us in the world. Notice at the last portion of chapter 15, verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus warned in us that there will be adversity, there will be difficulty, and for many Christians around the world, there is outright persecution and hatred. Some are paying with their very lives. How do we do that? If it were to come to our way, it's because we are abiding in Christ. We are his friends. 
we are producing, he is producing in us the fruit that is eternal and everlasting. Well, today, as I think about uh, that uh, passage and think about uh, the church, the local church, Grace Point Church, uh, we have great opportunities here and uh, to be the church, not just to look like a church, but to be the church. And I am thankful for those who are continue to carry on those ministries. I've said before that every person should be cared for in a local church in one form or another. All of us have needs. All of us have, have adversities of different levels and intensities. And yet there are times where we need an ear to listen to or an ear to listen to. We need an ear that will listen to us. And uh, there are th- uh, three, three legs like on a tripod. First one is uh, our deacon team who are there to minister. They're called ministers of, of mercy. Uh, secondly, there are life groups or small group ministries where you can get involved. And then thirdly, Stephen ministry. And Stephen ministry is uh, people who are trained to great depth uh, to be good listeners and uh, to give you good input. In fact, uh, I'm amazed. I went through the training uh, with Chalky and, uh, and Chalky and Diana are our trainers and leaders. And if you go through the training, it's 50 hours plus the hours you put in outside reading. And it is very intensive, but they're very good tools that they learn uh, in, this, in this ministry. So I'm going to invite uh, Chalky and Diana up at this time. And today we have the great privilege of commissioning uh, new Stephen ministers who've gone through all of the work to do this. Diana and Chalky. at the first service for commissioning Stephen ministers. And it was an exciting time for me to see this caring ministry take on flesh and become a reality. So this year, now two years since then, I stand here again with excitement because we're seeing the impact of Stephen ministry at Grace Point. A couple of 